Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 8, The Medieval Village and Manorial Law. In the last two episodes, we covered the basics of feudalism, which primarily focused on the mechanics of how a feudal relationship was established and the consequences of establishing such a relationship. As you may have noticed, these feudal relationships primarily involve the reigning monarchs and his vassals, in addition to the vassals of the vassals, often knights of the realm. Our discussion did not cover in depth the role of the peasants or their political and legal relationships with the barons and other lords. That is what we will cover in this episode. Some things to keep in mind before we dive into the details of the peasantry and manorial law. There are different types of peasants, and depending on the type of peasant you were, would dictate not only your role in society, but your legal rights to some extent as well. The other thing to keep in mind is that both the geographic area and time period I'm going to cover is going to be pretty broad. Like last time when I discussed feudal law, I'm not going to limit the discussion to either the Frankish kingdoms or the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. However, unlike last time, some of the information we cover today will be applicable to time periods after the Norman Conquest of 1066. And in large part, this is because the majority of historical evidence we have on this topic includes post-conquest periods, and I'm more concerned with the mechanisms of how village and manorial life operated as a general matter in order to set the stage for the Magna Carta in 1215. There certainly was development and changes over the centuries, and I will try to note those changes when it makes sense to do so. Now, with those qualifications out of the way, let's first discuss how and where peasants lived. Primarily, peasants lived in villages. It was in the medieval village where everything of importance happened in a typical peasant's life. It's where they lived, where they worked, where they worshipped, where they suffered, and where they feasted. As we will see, the village developed out of the necessity uh, of life and was the center of the primarily agriculturally based society that developed. Even though the word village is derived from the Roman Latin word villa, the concept of a medieval village was foreign to the Roman experience. During Roman times, the peasants on the continent and in Britain lived in cities, tiny hamlets, or dispersed on isolated homesteads. As Germanic tribes settled into their newly conquered lands in Gaul and Britain, by the 10th century, the village really came into its own, and its development coincided with that of a feudal system and the establishment of large estates held by powerful lords who received their fiefs directly from the king and were the king's vassals. While a Mediterranean village would typically be centered around a large castle on a hilltop, a village in Francia in Anglo-Saxon England was centered around the Lord's Manor and the parish church. The key to understanding this system is the importance of agriculture and land. It was how the peasants survived, and it was from the land that their lords amassed great wealth and power. A key feature in most villages was the open field system. In the fields not covered by forests or woodlands, an intricate system involved, which involved both private use of land as well as communal use of large strips of land that required cooperation and mutual consent 
concerning how the land would be planted, plowed, harvested, and pastured. Remember that proper land management was important because portions of the land from time to time needed to be fertilized and left fallow to ensure future production. Much of the law concerning village life and the Lord's Manor concerned this integration of private dwellings and communal open field land management. On top of this pre-existing reality of village development in Northern Europe and in England, especially after the Norman Conquest of 1066, the countryside gradually began to come under the organization of a manorialist system. The manor is traditionally defined as an estate held by a lord that includes the lord's domain. Remember, that's the area that the lord reserves for the benefit of himself and peasant holdings from which the lord collects fees and rents. Peasant village could be coterminous with a lord's manor, although it does not have to be. The best description of this relationship between a village and a manor I found in my research was that the manor served as a land-owning and land-management grid superimposed on the settlement patterns of villages and hamlets. Meaning that villages of peasants typically predated the establishment of a manor by a powerful lord, and the establishment of manors took into account pre-existing villages and communities. Some manors, especially held by the more powerful lords, may contain more than one village or several villages. The key to understanding the manor is that a portion of the estate comp comprising the manor is going to be reserved for the lord's direct use, another portion of those for open fields held in common, and a third portion reserved for the private use of the peasants. Who worked the land, who benefited from the land, and how the land was used were all determined by unwritten customs developed over the centuries and enforced by the peasants themselves, albeit under the administration and supervision of the lords who often found themselves holding fiefs in which these customary practices had already been long in existence. The lord, whose estate included a manor, would often employ officials or agents that acted on his behalf in order to manage the manor, so to speak. These officials had specific titles themselves. The key agents were the stewards, the bailiff, and the reeve. Other agents were employed, which I will also briefly touch on. Now, the steward served as the lord's chief executive or deputy that managed the lord's estates and holdings. Basically, he was the Lord's right-hand man that exercised great authority. This authority would include more than one manor, or could include more than one manor. The steward was often a great knight, or if the Lord happened to be a churchman, such as an abbot or a bishop, the steward could be a cleric. The steward's primary duty was supervision and management of all the Lord's estates, which he accomplished by making personal visits among the Lord's holdings. This could be as few as two or three times per year, depending on the extent of the Lord's holdings. The bailiff acted as a chief business manager and sometimes enforcer of the law on a specific individual manner. His primary concern was to manage and protect the Lord's domain and crops it would produce. The bailiff often resided on the manor itself and would live in the Lord's manor house if the Lord did not live there. The bailiff may also have subordinate agents that helped him carry out his duties. 
In earlier times, these assistants were called clavigers and sergeants. The third primary manorial official was the reeve. This may sound familiar to you because we talked about the king's reeves that he employed to manage his administrative districts called shires in England. Those were the shire reeves from which we get the name sheriff. But individual barons would also employ their own reeves for purposes of managing the peasant labor on the manor. The reeve would form and supervise plow teams, organize the labor to manage the lord's livestock, and see to it that the necessary property maintenance, such as fence building and ditch digging, took place. Remember that as part of the part of the manor, the laborers were the peasants, both free and unfree and perform the necessary labor to maintain not only their own livelihoods, but to maintain the operation of the Lord's Manor as well. Now, one type of official I must mention that no village could do without was the official ale tester. I am exaggerating somewhat because I'm sure there were villages without ale testers, but the ale tester monitored the ale brewed and sold to the public. Interestingly, this was the only office that a woman could hold as well. This most certainly had to be a sought-after office during medieval times. I mean, who wouldn't want to be the ale tester? Now, as for the peasants themselves, and this is important, they were divided into free or unfree. In fact, Henry de Bracton, a leading jurist of the 13th century, about the time of Magna Carta, claimed all men were either free or servile. Attempting to incorporate this notion of Roman tradition that maintained a form of slavery and tried to incorporate that into English society. And yet the reality of the situation was not that clear, cut, and dry. Those who were unfree were not considered slaves. They fell into a category of a villain or a serf. Our modern word villain is derived from the medieval context, although there was no criminal connotation associated with this medieval peasant status. But clearly it was someone at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Other terms used indicating a level of unfree status are serfs, otters, and borders. In some places, these different terms imply different legal statuses, duties, and obligations. But generally speaking, the serf, and that's the term I will use going forward for the unfree peasantry, suffered from very specific legal disabilities, particularly with respect to the relationship to the lord of the manor. The serf, while we may call him unfree with respect to the lord, was not equivalent to a slave. That is a common misconception of modern times. The serf can be distinguished from the slave in several different ways. I'll point out about four of them. So, first, the serf was not owned like a piece of personal property by a master that could be bought and sold, as would be the case with chattel slavery in the United States. Second, unlike slaves, serfs could contract legal marriages. Third, serfs could and were responsible for providing for their own personal comforts and necessities, such as clothing, and for the most part, they managed to do so. Lastly, unlike most slaves, serfs maintained certain rights in a house, land, and or goods. 
So while serfs were not the equivalent of slaves, their status did differ, though, from free peasants as well. Serfs were personally bound to the land. They could not legally separate themselves from the land itself without the Lord's permission. Now, this did often happen, but it was not unusual for a serf to have to purchase his manumission from the Lord and sometimes would have to make a payment to his Lord's Lord, the overlord. But notice the distinction I'm making here. The serfs were bound to the land and not the Lord. If the land on which the serf owed his labor was transferred to another Lord, the serf remained with the land and did not go with the Lord. The serfs were also required to perform heavy labor services on the Lord's domain lands. While free peasants would also often work on the Lord's domain lands, they were not always required to do so in consideration for, uh, and did so in consideration in payment of, uh, of rental dues uh, or reduction in those rental dues. The serfs were often obligated to pay to the Lord fees and dues, which the free peasantry were not required to pay for the land they held. And uh, unlike most free peasants, the serfs were significantly limited in their ability to alienate or dispose of the land that they rightfully used without the Lord's permission. Practically, this means that if a serf died, the use of his land would typically revert back to the Lord. Slavery also existed after the collapse of the Roman Empire in Francia and Anglo-Saxon England, but eventually it died out. A big factor in the decline and ultimate extinction of slavery among the descendants of the various Germanic tribes was the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. Over time, as more and more Germanic pagans converted to Christianity, the Church herself began to wield more influence and authority across Europe and Britain. The Church was very favorable to peasantry in general and released slaves that were tied to the Church's own fiefs and holdings. Moreover, with the development of canon law, which I hope to cover in the next episode, the church took to the, the position that slavery, while not necessarily illegal on a secular level, was sinful for a Christian to participate in. Typically, when a slave was released from his bondage, he would simply assume the status of a serf, and the institution eventually died out over time on its own. Free peasants lived a comparably similar lifestyle to those of the serfs, just without those legal impediments we discussed. So, for example, while peasants would often be contracted to work the soil of a lord or others, the free peasant was not obligated to do so. Nor were free peasants bound to the personal service of another. Of course, the free peasant was not tied to the land in the same way as a serf and could pick up and move on to somewhere else if necessary. Nevertheless, because free peasants often lived on the manors as tenants of the Lord, in effect, they were subjected to the Lord's authority, especially in his courts, which we're going to discuss in a few minutes. At the end of the day, for all intents and purposes, all these, all those dependent on the manor, whether free or unfree, were also dependent on each other for survival and subjected to the authority of the Lord. This relationship between the Lord and those who lived on the manor was not necessarily a one-way street where an absentee landlord exploits the labor of all those dependent on him for survival. 
The reality was that the Lord depended on the peasantry who occupied the manor as much as they depended on him. While certainly some lords were absent from the manor itself and exclusively used their stewards, bailiffs, and reeves to manage the manor, others didn't in fact live on their own manor houses and maintain an active presence. This is understandable when you realize that the Lord was entirely dependent on the economic viability of the manor, which he not only needed to survive himself, but also because these lords were vassals to higher lords or the kings directly and owed military and or money contributions to that higher lord or the king. Remember that unlike peasants who simply occupied and tilled the lord's land and their own holdings, the lords owed duties and obligations as vassals to their own lords and were bounded by feudal law to an extent the peasants were not. This meant that because homage and fealty absent from the lord-peasant relationship, and there was not a personal lifelong bond that existed between them, the Lord could not exploit the peasantry to such an excessive degree that would cause peasants to leave or trigger a revolt against the Lord. In other words, the Lords needed the peasantry, and it was not in their best interest to upset the implicit understandings and agreements that existed between himself and those who worked as fiefs. This leads us now to examine what those implicit understandings and agreements were that existed between the Lord and his peasant serfs and freemen. We also need to examine the legal obligations existing among the peasants themselves. Peasants lived often close to each other, and like any other human community, conflicts are going to arise. There needed to be a means for resolving these conflicts, and this is what I'll refer to as manorial law, distinguished from royal law in the church's canon law, which we will cover in future episodes. The core of manorial justice was the Lord's court. We did discuss the Lord's court in our episode on feudalism, but we need to discuss how the Lord's court operated now with respect to the peasantry. Unlike post-Enlightenment political theory that found a particular need to distinguish various components of sovereign authority, such as into executive, legislative, and judicial authorities, such separation of powers did not exist on the manor. But that's okay, because for the most part, the entire manorial system was self-regulating, without the need for different layers of government to compete with each other to ensure fairness. The law of the manor was not something arbitrarily dictated by a lord with statutes and regulations like we're accustomed to today, but rather the legal process served to what can, it can best be described as the discovery of law as it already existed, and did so in the context of resolving specific disputes that would get brought to the lord's court. And in this way, what we would call the executive, legislative, and judicial functions of the manor they were blended together to benefit the common good of the community. This process of discovery would often require a factual and legal investigation into the actual circumstances of any individual dispute. For example, if a lord claimed certain free peasants of a manor village owed him rent based on the fact the ancestors of those peasants paid those same rents to the lord's predecessors, 
If the presence disagreed and denied the payment of the rent, an investigation would need to be conducted to first determine if, in fact, those dues were paid over the years and if there were any understood conditions or limitations. Not unlike modern courts, this may require witness testimony to establish the truth of the matter, or perhaps documentary evidence, such as a written charter that may have been issued years ago in the past. Whatever the decision, it would bind those parties to the dispute and set a precedent for future general generations, at least with respect to those particular, particular lands. These disputes would take place at the manorial court, or the hallmote, where the villagers would gather. The hall, meaning the manor house, and the moat, meaning meeting. This practice was handed down from its Germanic roots and developed from the folk moots, the meetings of the people, as discussed in earlier episodes. It was these villagers that acted as the investigators, the prosecutors, the judge, and the jury. They were the ones to discover the customs that were applicable to any given case and then apply them appropriately to the disputes that came before them. These manorial court proceedings were often presided over by the Lord Steward, but he did not act as the judge. His presence was important, though, because it was the Lord's authority that backed the decision of the villagers. While these moot courts were often informal, they could even be held outside or inside the manor house itself, the power and respect granted to the courts cannot be denied. Despite informal settings, strict procedural rules were developed to maintain control of the proceedings. For example, disputes were initiated with a complaint. For example, John the Miller complains of Robert, son of John. Both the complainant or plaintiff and the person defending against the suit, the defendant, would be required to find pledges or someone who could vouch for, their, for the veracity of their claims. If the plaintiff did not follow through with the suit, he, he himself could be fined, basically wasting everybody's time. The notion of professional law enforcement as we understand it today simply did not exist. The manors were essentially self-policing units, but there were certain practices that developed, especially in the time of Knut of England, that served to hold one another to account. One such practice was called the Frank Pledge. Basically, how this worked was that all of the village's male residents would be assigned to units of about 10 to 12 individuals called the Frank Pledge. This could be based on family or clan identity, but it did not have to be. The members of the Frank Pledge were responsible for ensuring accountability of the other members. For example, if one member of the Frank Pledge was accused of wrongdoing, the other members were responsible for making sure he showed up at court. The Lord Stuart oversaw the Frank Pledge system and ensured its integrity. This was done at a form of manorial court called the Review of Frank Pledge. That was held at least once a year. The Frank pledges were instituted in order to maintain bliss, discipline within the village and manorial legal systems. What about the mechanism of enforcing the law and maintaining the public peace? Well, this process of policing, too, was done on a community level. If someone raised what was called a hue and cry upon someone else, Essentially, that constituted a verbal request to help uh, to those nearby within earshot to come and help. 
in the recorded legal documents, and it did become common for these proceedings of the Halmut to be documented. A typical Huon try would read something like this. Matilda justly raised a hue and cry against John because he drew blood from Hugh, the man of Matilda. Failure to answer a hue and cry would result in punishment, but the raising of a false hue and cry would do so as well. These issues would eventually be resolved at the Hallmote. Assuming a culprit was apprehended after a hue and cry, he would then be turned over to the Lord's bailiff to be held if the situation warranted. In this sense, the Lord and his agents aided in the law enforcement process. Upon conviction, the criminal would most commonly be assessed a fine in the amount the customs of the manor dictated if they existed, but could also be sentenced to imprisonment. Now, he would be subject to the bailiff's supervision in that case. What we can see then, as far as judicial process and law enforcement is concerned in the medieval village and manor, is cooperation among the Lord, his agents, and peasants themselves. Much of the system was self-regulating. Look at the fact-finding, legal determinations, which was really just a discovery of the applicable customary law, and the enforcement of the village peace. In our examples, we mentioned private disputes and a criminal case. Indeed, most of these cases involved resolution of economic land use, animal use, and criminal complaints. However, enforcement of morality, marriage, and inheritance customs typically uh, resided outside of this manorial system and remained with the church and the application of the church's canon law. The next episode will be dedicated to a review of the canon law and the church's administrative uh, administration of justice in those cases. Finally, it should be noted that the manorial courts were not just limited to disputes between peasants or a means for the Lord to enforce his will on the peasants. The peasants could utilize the courts against the Lord himself, for example. But as noted when we discussed feudalism, the Lord had every incentive to ensure justice was administered in his courts, even when he was the one complained of. His actions towards the peasants, especially his free peasants, were bounded by the customs of the manor. So, for example, if a lord for years had allowed a family of peasant tenants to collect deadwood from his lands to sell or use without payment of rent, and then one day arbitrarily demanded the tenants start to pay for the privilege, this could be a matter brought to the almote for resolution. If the tenant's fellow peasants acting as jurors sided with the peasant tenant, or in other words, concluded that, in fact, this was the custom that existed based on the Lord's failure to request payment in the past, the Lord would be bound to their decision, even in his own courts. Generally, this need to appease the peasants and keep the peace was enough to ensure self-regulation. But in time, and later in later centuries, the kings would open the royal courts to peasants and provide an avenue of appeal against their lords. To summarize the episode today, then, we discussed the who, how, and the why of the medieval village and the Lord's Manor, especially with regard to the organization of the manor and the administration of manorial justice.
Especially important was the discussion on the local nature of justice and how even the Lord in his own courts was limited by custom in the exercise of his authority. This is going to be highly relevant as we complete our patchwork of legal relationships, rights, and duties necessary to understand the Magna Carta. In the next episode, we will add another layer to this increasingly complex system of governance in the medieval era, when I will cover the church's role in this system and the implementation of canon law.